one of the things about modern technology is it becomes very easy, doesn't it? And especially when we project the Bible reading onto the screen, it does often mean that we don't actually take our Bible out of our bag. Well, I would encourage you to do it this morning. If you've got your Bible with you, it'd be really helpful if you've got Ephesians 1 open in front of you. And I think it's a good practice that we should be having in making sure that we have our scripture before us. You know, I think there's something really quite beautiful about hearing godly people pray. There's just nothing quite like it. The core that I grew up in was a very small core. There was only probably 20 people in the morning meeting, if that, 15 to 20 of us. I was by far the youngest. And in the evening, we had maybe half a dozen more people in the evening meeting. As a teenager who'd just come to faith, I learned a lot from the saints that were gathered around me. Every week on a Sunday, the officer at some point, either in the morning meeting or the evening meeting, would open up the meeting for prayer. And you could guarantee, guarantee that Corps Cadet Guardian Ethel Johnson or songster leader Ernie Robinson would rise to their feet and start to pray. And you know what? We were so glad that they did. Not just because it meant that we didn't have to, but because they spoke in such a gracious way that we just delighted in being part of their prayers. It was as though they were sat at home in their front room doing their own devotions when they came and led prayers in the the meeting at the army. There was just something beautiful about it, the content, the language. It revealed as much about their own character and souls that a teenager like me just wanted to aspire to. I think we get a great insight into the spiritual life of a person by the prayers that they speak. And here, in the first chapter of Ephesians, we come to the point where Paul's actually allowing us to hear in written form one of his prayers for the church at Ephesus. He's already set the scene in the previous 14 verses, as Claire shared with us last week, by telling the Ephesians and a wider readership that God had been planning something big, well before anybody knew it. But we were to be part of it, though it was up to us. You sense his excitement as he speaks about the lavish grace that forgives our sins and buys us back from all that seeks to own us. And he tells the Ephesians that God intends to bring it all together in Christ so that the qualities and the characteristics of Jesus that we associate with Jesus will be embraced by the whole of creation and that our destiny as followers of Jesus is to live for the praise of his glory. You read those first 14 verses, you really sense his excitement about that. But then we get this shift and he becomes a prayer. From verse 15 onwards, we get this specific prayer from Paul. What we pray for others can tell us a great deal about what we think of them and what we think of God. Just think about that for a moment. What we pray for others can tell us a great deal about what we think of them and what we think of God. A little while back, I was in London and I bumped into someone that I knew who said to me, I'm hearing good things about Birmingham Citadel. And my response was, 
Really? What are you hearing? Good things, he said as he walked off. Okay. I couldn't help but feel that this was a pleasantry offered in passing rather than a serious, informed observation. You know, Paul starts his prayer in a very similar fashion. Verses 15 and 16, what does he say? Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. But when I read this, I don't feel there's any pleasantries about this. I don't think this is just something to kickstart a conversation. Do you? I actually think he genuinely means this. I think he genuinely has heard good things. He knows what he's heard. He can articulate them. It's not just good things. And therefore, as a result of that, he's praying for them. Paul's not seen them for a while. You just must remember that. He's in prison in Rome. He's not seen the church at Ephesus for quite a while. And knowing all the influences that were in Ephesus at the time, the pagan worship, all those other things, he was really genuinely delighted to hear that they were doing well. He was really pleased. He was pleased that they were growing. I've said it many times from this platform, and I don't want to expand on it again this morning. Suffice this to say that I do believe it's important that we tell people about what God is doing for us and in us. That's what the church at Ephesus were doing. That's how we got to know about it. There was no other way. It was passed down the line. And there in his prison cell, he was able to hear this good news. And this starts to lead him into the next couple of verses, which sets out the purpose for his prayer. And the purpose of this whole prayer is to remind the church at Ephesus of what God has done. My home call was just a little call. If I tell you the attendance wasn't very big, you can imagine the sections were tiny. There were five of us in the band if we were lucky. Most days it was four. There were six of us in the songsters. Our repertoire was not very large at all. Our band repertoire was something along the lines of Rejoice, Bullinger from the old Green Book. Well, Southdown, we could manage Southdown if the euphonium player turned up to take the tune. <laughs> What did the songsters do? Out from his wounded side, from gems. Everything was from gems. You know, I used to feel sorry for the poor corps officer. I think he actually knew what was coming every single week. It must have sounded like a broken record. The songsters are now going to... Ah, yes, we've not heard that for two weeks, okay. But that's how it was. Yet for a young Christian like me, what did it do? It reminded me over and over and over again of what God had done. A simple little piece like rejoice reminded me that I was a rejoicing person and that I had great cause to rejoice. A piece like Southdown reminded me that when I think of what he'd done for me, I'd never go back anymore. 
And a piece like out of his wounded side reminded me of that beautiful sacrifice on Calvary's mountain. Kyle Fever comments this in one of his uh, commentaries on this verse. The reminder to rely on what God has done is nearly a broken record, an overplayed tune in Christian theology. Yet, it is good to keep playing this tune as it's all too easy for us humans to start thinking that we can actually set the course for our own existence and believe that it is actually going to turn out well. However, if we play this tune too generically, it loses much of its power. We need to be reminded more specifically of God's activity that establishes and defines us. Paul is reminding them of what God has done. That's what his purpose of his prayer is. Why is he determined to remind them of what God has done? Well, from a prison cell in Rome, he doesn't know their circumstances anymore. He can't pray for specifics for them. He can't pray for their daily problems. He can't pray for their pressures because he doesn't know what they are. But what he can pray for is that they would know God personally. And that's what he prays. He prays that they will know God better. And what he's praying for is more than just the knowledge of God up here. He's not actually just praying that they'll have some kind of intellectual head knowledge of God. Verse 18, he says this. He prays that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Well, what does that mean? He's praying that they'll get to know God better, but he's also saying, I pray that you will be enlightened. I found this um, comment really helpful when I was trying to get my head around what this meant. The knowledge that Paul is praying for, the, the knowledge that Paul is praying for includes an intellectual grasp of the truth, but it also grips our emotions and brings our will into greater submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. What we grasp up here, what we know up here, should begin to enlighten, move, and motivate in here. That's what he's saying. What we know up here enlightens, motivates, and moves what goes on in here. Do you know, it's not enough to just come and bask in the love of God. Too many times nowadays, we're just encouraged to come and bask in the love of God. No, that's not enough. What we know up here should enlighten, move, and motivate our hearts to do more. So Paul prays that the Ephesians, and when he's praying for the Ephesians, he's praying for us as well. He's praying that they will know three things. Firstly, he prays that they will remember the hope to which they have been called. Verse 18, that's what it says. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. We've all got lots of hopes in life. I hope we have anyway. I hope we've all got lots of hopes in life. But what are the hopes of those who are drawn and who are called by God? What are our hopes? Well, I would like to think the hope of being changed into the likeness of Jesus is one of them. That's one of my hopes. 
And I'd like to think that the hope of knowing and experiencing the glory of God in all of its fullness in eternity is another one. Those are our hopes. That's what we hope for. I think it's important to remind ourselves that the life that we now have is not all we're going to get. That's good news. The life that we have now is not all we're going to get. We're promised more. We are promised so much more. And sometimes we have to shift our focus beyond the here and the now. We're being prepared for something that's incredibly great. But it's yet to come. It's not here yet. And all of this life is working towards another end. And that truth is important to hang on to. And that's what Paul was trying to say to them. You think it's good now? You wait till the future. Or you think you're in trouble now? Don't worry because the future is going to be great. That's what he's trying to say to them. Paul prays that the Ephesian followers will feel in their hearts the great hope that God has called them to. And it's happening now. It's happening for them now as they're daily being changed into the likeness of Jesus. But it's also waiting for them beyond death too. So that's the first thing he prays. The second thing he prays is that they may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. I can't imagine what it must feel like to discover that you own something of immense value. On a Sunday night, I often watch the Antiques Roadshow and I think to myself, do you know, I must go in my loft more often. I really must. Or I must join Major Vic at a car boot sale at some point. This is a, 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 an actual segment from the Antiques Roadshow a couple of years ago, and this is about a gentleman who owned a guitar. It was given to him. Just watch. Now, you brought me in an exceptionally rare guitar with an even more interesting story behind it. But let's focus on the make first. It's a make I rarely have ever seen. Paul, tell me a little bit about the maker. So this is Bartels of California in Riverside, California in the 1960s. They're making um, some new models of guitars. And this is a very rare one because this was a prototype. It's a fretless guitar. That, that's what makes it unique. And it's, it's pretty much the only one that was made by Bartels. So 1964 to 68, maybe, during that period. And then the story goes that the company owner has always said he gave one to John Lennon and he gave one to Jimi Hendrix. This is the Lennon one. Yeah. So, Ray, you're the owner. How did it come into your possession? In the 70s and 80s, I was doing lots of uh, recording sessions on guitar. And one of the things I used to do regularly was sessions for handmade films. Okay. That George Harrison started. I was asked to play guitar, which was great. Had lots of laughs, and at the end of the session, George said, I'm not sure what to do with this, but you have a go. And I just got, you know, handed <laughs> the guitar. It's a strange old thing to play because it's... It's not like a oak fret, so, I mean, they can play things like... But um, I played a few notes, and he said, yeah, he said, you're definitely getting more out of it than I am. It's doing better for you. Why don't you have it? 
Well, that's not a bad, you know, accolade that you no, can it's play great. better than George Harris. It's actually kept to think of it. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I mean, at the time it was quite, it was, it was quite rock and rolly. So this is not the greatest of rock and roll guitar unless you're going to play slide or something like that. Okay. Now the icing on the cake is is the photograph you brought along with you today because this is uh, George Harrison in his house, a Friar Park, uh, and here's George standing at the back. And just down here on the left-hand side is, uh, is the guitar in question. And you can just see the, the maker's name and the design below. So quite categorically, that puts that guitar in this room in George Harrison's house. So um, I think that's 100% certainty. It is what it is. Well, thank you for bringing it along. Yes, thank you pleasure. for playing for us. But uh, we have to talk about values. Um, you know, to a guitar collector, it's initially a very rare guitar. Mm -hmm. Then to somebody who's, you know, a Beatles fan, you know, to own a guitar that was once owned by both John Lennon and George Harrison, can you get a better history to the most important mm. rock stars of the 20th century? Yeah, yeah. I would suggest that at auction, I wouldn't be surprised if it made between three and four hundred thousand pounds. <laughs> Should I have a drink? <laughs> I don't have a guitar like that. I wish I did. I mean, you see the shock around the room. I often wonder when I watch the Antiques Roadshow, what do these guys go on and do? They all, I hear these people, oh, I'm not, never selling, never selling. I wonder how many actually do go on and sell. He did. He did go sell that guitar. Didn't get 400,000, but it made him a very wealthy man indeed. Inheritance. We understand what it is from our human terms. That is a typical example of it. He inherits a guitar, it's worth this, he does that with it. But there are different interpretations of what Paul means when he describes God's inheritance here in this passage of scripture. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you to, the riches of his glorious inheritance notice first of all this is not our inheritance paul doesn't speak of your inheritance he speaks of his i.e god's inheritance well what on earth is god's inheritance well god's inheritance is us that's what god's inheritance is you might say, as, God, as followers of Jesus, don't we already belong to God? Well, yes, we do. But, you know, one day we will finally stand in his presence and we will, at that point, be fully his people. God will claim us as completely his own in the presence of the angels. We will be his inheritance. <coughs> Another interpretation of this that resonated with me was that God's inheritance in us is the joy that he actually feels in using us to accomplish his work in changing people, in bringing them from death to life using the gifts that he's given us. God delights. He receives inheritance by seeing you and me use the gifts he's given us to bring other people to faith. That's an inheritance as far as God is concerned. 
And when we use that interpretation, what Paul's saying is he wants the Ephesians to discover how exciting, how enriching it can be for us to know that God uses you and me to bring about his work and purposes in the world. Now marvel at that. God uses you and me to bring about his purposes in the world and by doing it, we bring him joy and an inheritance. Wow. Finally, what's the third thing that he prays that they will know? That they will know God's incomparably great power. He prays that the Ephesians will have power. Don't know about you, I'm always looking for power. We're all looking for power. By two o'clock this afternoon, when I'm hot and bothered and wanting to fall asleep on the sofa, I will be looking for power. And it seems to be something that I'm always asking for. Power, power. He says here, Paul gives us a model of what the power of God is like. And he says it's the same power that was at work when Christ was raised from the dead. That's how he describes it. The power is the same as when Christ was raised from the dead. In our world, we associate power with noise. I can't tell you how many times I'm sat at the traffic lights in the one stop. I haven't mentioned the traffic lights at the one stop for many a month. But how many times, how many times I'm sat there and some driver comes next door to me in his flashy car and what does he do? The lights are red. But he's revving his engine to let me know that he's got a big, powerful car. And when it goes to green, he's away. And he's away making all the noise that he can. In our world, we associate power with noise. I'm sat in my back garden enjoying a lovely cold drink on a lovely summer's day, enjoying the peace and tranquility. What happens in two gardens around? He starts his lawnmower up or he starts his drill up. I know he's got some kind of power because I associate it with noise. Now, actually, that's not what happened, is it, on that resurrection day, as far as we're aware? We're not aware that there was a great, massive noise or thunderstorm. We're told nothing of that on that resurrection day. All we're told is that people went to a tomb, the stone was rolled away, the clothes were done, the power that had brought him to life was obviously a very tranquil, quiet kind of thing. Nobody made a song and dance about it. Nobody started, have you heard what's going on in the graveyard? Nobody. They just came because the power was a much quieter way. Sometimes when God gives his power, we don't have any sense that it's happening, but it is you know, God's power is not like spinach. It's not like Popeye. We don't say, right, I need power today. Da -da 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 -da. Spinach down the throat. Hey, where we go? That's not how God's power works. Not in my experience, anyway. You don't suddenly feel strong, capable, and mighty because something's happened in power. You know, when Paul was writing his second letter to the Corinthians... He said this in chapter 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my witnesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. My experience simply says that when we feel weak, when we feel inadequate, when we feel ineffectual, this is when God exercises his power. And do you know what? You'll never find out what God can actually do until you begin to step out and take on some activity that you need power for. You won't. You will never find out what God can do until you begin to step out and take on some activity that you need power for. And so in conclusion, we get a great insight into the spiritual life of a person by the prayers that they speak. And that is very much evident in this little prayer that Paul makes for the Ephesians. Paul wants the church in Ephesus to come to know the risen Christ so that they may fully know who they are and the life that lies before them. He wants them to appreciate the hope that is theirs. He wants them to appreciate the riches of their inheritance and God's inheritance. And he wants them to understand how Christ's power is working in and through them each and every day. And you know what? I think he wants that for us too. And so this morning, we come and we just simply say to our God, who is immeasurably more powerful than we can dare to imagine, God, send a new touch of power on my soul, Lord. Send it now. Send it now. Touch my lips with a call from thine altar. Send a new touch of power on my soul. I want power today, not spinach power, quiet, but great power that comes in those quiet moments of saying to God, come, send a new touch of power. I want to be used by him. I want me to be part of his inheritance, and I can only do that in his power. I want to know God, not just up here, but here in a way that it motivates all that I am. I can only do that in his power. I can't do it in me. And therefore, this morning, I just remind myself of all that he is, all that he's done, and all that he will do. And I dare to ask, please, Lord, send a new touch of power. How about you? Will you? There's a lovely song in our songbook chorus. We've sung it many times. Again, I remember singing it many times in that little core of mine that I grew up in. And they were precious moments. The sound wasn't big. There wasn't many of us to sing it. But there in the tranquility, God came. Song 785 just simply says these words. Send a new touch of power on my soul, Lord. Send it now, Lord. Send it now. Send a new touch of power on my soul. That's what Paul prayed for the Ephesians. He prays it for you and me now. So let's do it. Let's sing together. Thank you. Send a new
just for a few moments, we're going to close our eyes. We're going to do what we did many times in my home car and just open up our meeting for prayer. And if you feel led this morning, if the power of the Lord's on you to just pray with us, why don't you just do it? Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace, O oh God. We thank you for the answered prayers, O oh God. We thank you for the prayers that we have answered, not in the way that we expected you to answer them, O oh God. We thank you for the wisdom that when you answered our prayers the way that we didn't want, O oh God, to trust in you and keep believing in you that your ways are not our ways, O oh God. Father God, we thank you for everything that has been said today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your power, oh God. As we go out in the world and share to other people that you are indeed a God who answers prayers. Father God, we thank you for this service. Amen. Amen. Father God, this morning we thank you that we've been able to just be part of the Apostle Paul's prayer. And whilst it was for the Ephesians, it's for us too that we may come to know the risen Christ, to know who we are, the life that lies before us. Lord, this morning, may we each appreciate the hope that is ours, and may we each really want to know you better and be enlightened, being motivated in our heart to want to serve you in every way that you want. Lord, we thank you that we are part of your inheritance. You give us an inheritance, but we thank you that you allow us to be part of your inheritance. And may we just appreciate all the riches that come through our own inheritance and being part of yours. Lord, today, may we always grasp how your power is working through and in us. And as we say, Lord, today and every day, Send a new touch of power. In a quiet way, give us all that we need to go out and be all that Christ wants us to be. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.